Well, the best way to find out is to get her out on the water. If anything's gonna happen, it's gonna happen out there. Okay, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Saltwater Coffee Podcast for a random musings episode. It has been quite a while, I think, since I've done one of these. I think the last one that I did was in August, right before I started my new job. And this will be random musings number seven, roughly for the week of February 21, 22-ish of 2022. So I got a couple of things to talk about, and as usual, I'm just kind of the whole point of these random musings is that I just talk about random things, doesn't matter what they are, just give some observations, some thoughts on them, and then we go on about our day. And I usually have a few notes in front of me that I'm just talking about, so that's what's going to happen. So, as I previously stated, uh, last time I gave one of these, I was starting a new teaching job uh, this past uh, September. Yeah, let me say that, um, you know, it's been pretty stressful and pretty much these days my life revolves around my work and it really just sucks up all my time including my weekends. I mean I barely have enough time to write new blog entries let alone curate you know enough content for random musings because essentially my brain is always turned on from one you know teaching thing pedagogy thing to another so this that and the other and this has been kind of echoed across the board. Uh, teaching has been really, really stressful, not just for for me, uh, you know, in, in my own teaching, but for even uh, lots and lots of veteran teachers. I've talked to, you know, so many teachers in my building and many, many other teachers, and it's just, we're tired and we are, people are just burning out left and right. I know a number of people who have left, you know, resigned before the end of the year, uh, you know, even before the end of, you know, the first semester. So yeah, it's it's been, you know, crazy, stressful, crazy challenging. I mean, when you factor in the point that the kids have basically been spent 18 months in combined distance learning before they came back for this school year, that means they haven't really been socializing face to face and they probably haven't been learning a whole lot because they've been so distracted by their screens. I mean, it's it's no secret, you know, during CDL that, you know, many of these kids, they weren't they just you know, logged on, turned off their cameras, turned off their mics, and never really, you know, said much in class, so to speak. Yeah, we know what you were doing, kids. You know, you were basically just playing video games for hours on, you know, out of the day, and just, yeah, weren't, weren't accomplishing much academically, so. But more importantly, I think that lack of socialization, it really, really shows. You know, there's something is not there in combined distance learning. And when students have not had that face-to-face interaction with each other, they practically, there's so much, so much loss there. Like, they just don't know how to talk with each other, how to interact with each other, and how to do it in a, in a really respectful and, you know, courteous way. And just, you know, just the amount of disciplinary issues we've been seeing, um, the amount of stress and trauma that the, the students have been under is very intense and it's like you know we're we're working hard now to kind of undo a lot of the damage so when you think about it you know that 18 months that year and a half in cdl you know you've had sixth graders who haven't been in school since like fourth grade essentially you know they've never 
you know, they haven't been in school since they were in, you know, grade school. I've got seventh graders who haven't seen the inside of a school classroom since the fifth grade, right? They never got that ability to transition from fifth grade into sixth grade into middle school and that, you know, and move from there like, you know, people, you know, adults take for granted. You know, and eighth graders who haven't been inside their school, their middle school since sixth grade. So across the board, we're just seeing all these losses and issues regarding things, you know, like their maturity level, their reading levels, uh, their, you know, arithmetic, their writing levels, their, and particularly their executive functioning skills. They're just all really, really low. So um, for those of you who don't know, like executive functioning skills, right, they're controlled by your frontal cortex, right, the, the forward part of your brain. And that's the whole like, you know, decision making skills, making rational decisions, you know, oh, I should, you know, not procrastinate, I should work on this, you know, I should make the right decision, those types of things, you know, doing the right thing, you know, logic, those types of functions, those are executive functioning skills, right, that help you move about in the world, you know, make decisions, and, you know, make smart, use logic and things like that. So, so we're just seeing so much loss in that regard. And it really, really shows, you know, you've got kids who can barely stand to be in the same room with each other, you know, some of them anyway. And, you know, they're getting into fights, or they're openly defiant of authority or of teachers or whatever. Yeah, they just really some students just seriously lack the ability to appropriately express themselves, you know, and all that entails. Anywho, there's that, you know, and so much about, you know, teaching is, you know, building up relationships with the students, you know, developing a rapport, you know, being friendly, but not being their friend, so to speak, you know, I'm not my buddy buddy with my students, so to speak, you know, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still their teacher, you know, but, you know, I've got students who, who don't like my class, like my social studies class, because, you know, I give out all kinds of readings or lots of readings and all that, you know. Of all things to get said about, they're upset, like, by how many readings I give out, which, when you break it down, like, is not that much. Like, during the second quarter, I gave out, like, a total of about 12, you know, maybe 13 or 14 readings. Yeah, it was, it was definitely in the neighborhood of there, you know. So I did not give out that many readings. And most of the readings that I gave out weren't longer than three to four pages. Most of them less. Most of the readings I gave out their length was around one and a half to two pages. And that would even be like double spaced or like, you know, one and a half spaced maybe. So they were not that long. Like, you know, a high school student or whatever could read it in about within 10 minutes, I'd say, easily. But again, like I said, you know, there's been a lot of learning loss. So it, a lot of these things, like it takes these students, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth graders, it takes them proportionately a longer amount of time to do things. What we could do in like two minutes would take these kids like five minutes or more. So like, oh my God, this reading is so long. You know, they'd tell me like that. Oh, another reading. Yeah, you know, it's so long. Like it's, it's two pages. It's like one piece of paper front and back. And that's all you have to read, you know, but they act like I've assigned them to read Finnegan's Wake or something by James Joyce. You know, I want you to read, you know, Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake and, uh, you know, write me a... Uh, a 50 page, you know, thesis on it or a, you know, or a PhD dissertation breaking down every little thing about <laughs> they act like I'm asking them to move a mountain or something, you know, I mean, that's, I guess, par for the course, you know, especially when it comes to middle schoolers, right? You know, 
everything you ask them to do, it's like it, it becomes personal and, you know, it's like I'm asking them to, uh, you know, walk into the, the jaws of death or something. <laughs> anyway, in another kind of a funny story I have from one of my students, I like to pose lots, lots of little questions and things like that and debates like that. And so we can discuss things as a class. And so one funny question I asked is, you know, is cereal, you know, in a bowl with milk, does that count as soup? You know, and some of them are like, oh, yes, it counts as soup, but no, it doesn't. You know, and so they, we got into this big discussion in class about it. You know, it's like, oh, soup needs to be, you know, needs to be warm, needs to have a salty broth, uh, needs to have vegetables and sometimes meat or whatever, you know, and maybe noodles or whatever, you know, in it, those types of things. So they were laying down all these criteria for what soup is and what soup isn't. And most of them came to the conclusion that cereal with milk is not soup. You know, but I'm like, well, there are cold soups as well. Like, um, uh, what's it called? Like, vichyssoise is cold. <laughs> One of my students, you know, told me like, oh, the, the ocean is soup. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so like, well, think about it. You know, it's, you know, the ocean around the equator is warm. I'm like, okay. It's like, it's salty, like the broth. It has veggies, you know, like, uh, you know, lots of plants and things like that in it. It's, it's got vegetation in it and it has meat in the term, in the form of fish, you know? And I thought about that for a minute and, and then, you know, I just started laughing at it cause I'm like, eh, well, according to your criteria, for one thing, you're right. And second, yeah, sure. The ocean is soup. If you want to think about it that way, <laughs> got some funny kids. At least I, I, uh, I applaud them on their ability to use logic in that regard. So, I mean, especially when you consider that, you know, many people, many communities, in this world, and a, and a good amount of the population gets its vital sustenance from the sea, then yeah, I guess if you want to say that the ocean is soup, then all right, more power to you. Anyway, so moving on, I've been watching a number of TV shows from my youth, unlike, you know, Netflix or Hulu or whatever. Uh, namely, I've been watching Ally McBeal and The X-Files. Kind of a weird combination, like not together like I kind of binge you know a couple episodes here and a couple episodes there but you know got got that hankering for the nut for 90s culture you know got that got that nostalgia craving and so I've been going back and watching some of these shows that I remember watching you know when I when I was in like middle school or early high school and all that and it's just kind of a nice trip down memory lane so I guess for those of you who don't know um the show Ally McBeal is a legal comedy slash drama series and it aired on, I think it was Mondays at 9 p.m. And it ran for like five seasons from 1997 to 2002. So kind of late 90s, very early 2000s. And it stars Callista Flockhart as the titular character. And it focuses on her relationships with <clears throat> the lawyers in the fictional Boston law firm of Cage and Fish. Yeah, it's basically, you know, the character Alan McBeal. She, she's a lawyer. She works in Boston. And she goes round and, you know. And, um, you know, it's all about the relationships in the law firm. Each ep in addition, e each episode usually features a court case that addresses some kind of social issue on the more dramatic side and oftentimes a, a far more kind of silly or kind of outlandish lawsuit or whatever to kind of, you know, integrate into the story. And in the series does that in a way to explore, you know, either social issues or it's not really philosophical, but, you know, social or you know, comedic kind of conundrums, things like that, you know. The law firm in the series seems to specialize in personal injury law. Like, a, oh, this, this guy wants a divorce, you know, because 
his wife dropped a grand piano and crushed his, you know, Lamborghini or something and blah, 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 or, you know, or this person has some weird, you know, personality trait and, you know, now they're suing their employer for wrongful termination or something like that, you know? So, yeah, I mean, many of the lawsuits in the, in the series are, you know, very humorous or kind of wild or weird and, you know, but the, the show does take some time to occasionally deal with more dramatic social issues, particularly of the 90s, you know, things like, you know, sexuality, homosexuality, um, you know, there were a couple episodes, you know, like transsexuality, gay marriage, you know, was a big thing at the time. On the more dramatic side, you know, maybe like a, a patient is terminally ill and they want permission to, you know, be euthanized for a, a doctor-assisted suicide, something like that. Yeah, all kinds of different lawsuits, you know. And, you know, sprinkled here and there, there's like one or two murders. So the show is actually notable at the time for using uh, CGI elements, particularly for the main character's fantasy moments to emphasize the comedy. So you may have seen the dancing baby, you know, the blue Swedes hooked on a feeling. Yeah, that comes from this show, you know, the ooga chaka, ooga, ooga, ooga chaka. Yeah, so a little dancing CGI baby. Yeah, that's from that show. So kind of long before... Uh, you know, Hooked on a Feeling was made more popular again by uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. But so the main character, Valley McBeal, has all these kind of weird fantasies. And it's done to emphasize the kind of the comedic aspects, you know, kind of get inside her head and inside her, her inner monologue, so to speak. Creator David E. Kelly, who's also the writer for most of it, was known at the time for, I'm pretty sure he was a Boston lawyer, Boston-based lawyer turned screenwriter. And so he created a number of different TV shows which aired on different networks. Uh, for Alan, Alan McBeal was one of them. And another one was The Practice. And I think later on he did like Boston Law and all that. So, yeah. So I guess in that respect, you know, he, he brought a lot of his kind of, you know, his understanding of law and being a trial lawyer and all that to the screen. And in fact, Alan, Alan McBeal did have a couple of crossover episodes with the series The Practice, which starred Dylan McDermott. Uh, again, also a David E. Kelly uh, production. But uh, from my understanding, the practice was much more dramatic and dealt with a lot of heavier topics. So that being said, I never watched it. So I only saw those couple of episodes where um, some of the characters from the practice appeared on Alan McBeal. And I think there's like one or two episodes in the practice where Alan McBeal appears on um, that show as well. Now, this was kind of a big thing at the time, if I recall, because the shows aired on different networks and doing crossover episodes with shows on different networks was virtually unheard of. So... So lo and behold, I finished watching the whole series, all five seasons, and I think simply put, I, I would definitely say that I prefer seasons one through three, and I think those are the better ones in my opinion. Um, season four, which, you know, is kind of famous, it was known for having um, Robert Downey Jr. as uh, Alan Beale's love interest. Season four was pretty good. Basically, they wrote Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Larry, out of the show because Robert Downey Jr. was having some drug problems and they basically, you know, put him on a bus, so to speak, and wrote him out of the show. And that was the end for him. Season five, the final season, of course, was the one that got the lowest ratings. And it was also the only season of the series to not to not win an Emmy Award. And that basically was the death knell for that series. So season five definitely was pretty blah I guess you could say I'm not really a fan of it I it kind of meandered along you know there wasn't I didn't think there was a really great overall arc to it you know you didn't see a lot of very good characters and a lot of the writing was felt kind of stale in a way 
I mean, one thing about, you know, season five, I guess, was that, you know, John Bon Jovi played Alan Field's love interest, but I'd say uh, Bon Jovi's acting abilities are not necessarily anything I would ne- really write home about. Seasons one through three are the best ones, in my opinion. Season four, pretty good. Season five, nah. I guess in retrospect, you know, watching it now in, in the 2020s and all that, you know, I, I found the show to be still be really funny. Um, if only for its really quirky humor and just kind of the absurdity and the weird situations and maybe the kind of the way it makes fun of like sexuality and all that. And I, I still enjoy that about the show. But that being said, you know, this was a product of the 90s and definitely some of the attitudes that the show displays have not held up and some of the humor is a bit shaky, I guess. So the 90s were indeed a different time and times change. So society has moved on and we've changed as a people, as a society. So, but I mean, I guess I could still recommend Alan Beale. It's still pretty funny. Yeah. I don't know if it's that, if it's uh, necessarily the trailblazing show it once was. Yeah. So for example, like I realize nowadays, you know, of course, now that I'm older in my thirties, you know, I realize how like misogynistic, you know, the characters of Billy and Richard are, you know, and Allie is basically this kind of selfish like a child in, an, in the body of an adult, you know, kind of like she's got this like it's all about me kind of attitude when she gets frustrated and doesn't get her way and all that. Maybe props to Calista Flockhart for, you know, pulling off the character in that way. That's probably how they wanted her to act. I vaguely recall a there's a pretty big debate about Calista Flockhart looking underweight at some point in the series to the point where people actually speculated that she had like an eating disorder, right? eating disorders in young people, whether it be anorexia or bulimia or whatever, you know, those are kind of big hot topics, you know, in the, in the late nineties. I remember there was a point where Calista Flockhart looked like, you you're looking pretty skinny there. And there's like, Oh my gosh, Calista Flockhart has, has an eating disorder, you know? And I remember her going on TV, you know, and basically debunking it. And yeah, she's like, if you think I have an eating disorder, you can kiss my butt or something. <laughs> and if I recall, there was also another debate about how the character of Ally McBeal herself was like either the new face of feminism in the late 90s or or was damaging to feminism because of the way the character portrays professional women and she's got her the character is kind of the selfish kind of person very dramatic you know and a lot of people I guess read into that that you know it's not good for feminism it portrays professional working women as weak as like, you know, prone to weird hallucinations and fantasies and emotionally unstable and all that, you know, things that you wouldn't want, particularly in a lawyer. Personally, I don't really read much into the gender politics of it. I mean, I'm sure some people do. Yes, it's true that the show was largely written by a man, right? David E. Kelly wrote just about all the episodes, you know, and like I said, Allie is essentially a big child in the body of an adult. And I mean, but how seriously you want to take its its gender politics from this show, you know, that's kind of debatable, right? The show did often deal with major societal issues related to things like, like gender or sexuality at the end of the day. But that being said, at the end of the day, it is a comedy show. You know, although some of the humor doesn't really hold up, some of the characters are very misogynistic, it's not necessarily the best representation of modern feminism, especially in the 2020s, you know, it's a comedy show. It's entertainment. You know, people, it's just like, geez. <laughs> yeah, it did try to tackle some, you know, issues that were relevant at the time, but it did it, much of it, in a very comedic way. And so, yeah, I don't think it was meant to be taken too seriously, but that's just my take on Alan McBeal. So, 
whatever damage it did or did not do to feminism is debatable. Anyway, moving on. So the other show I've been watching, of course, is The X-Files. So for those of you who don't know, The X-Files is a science fiction TV series. It also had two movies that um, spun off from it. I'm trying to recall. I think it aired on Fridays at 9 p.m. for like seasons one through three, and then it switched to Sundays at nine for, from seasons four through nine. And then um, years later, it would have a revival for season 10, which aired on Mondays, and season 11 was on Wednesdays. So yeah. Bulk of the show ran for nine seasons from 1993 to 2002. In 2016, it was... Re- revived with a short season 10 and then in 2018 there was a slightly longer season 11 and that basically kind of concluded the uh the whole x-files series at least up for now now the show follows fictional fbi agents fox Mulder, played by david Duchovny, and dana scully played by jillian anderson who investigate x-files cases which uh, from my understanding are not actual cases within the fbi but um the x-file cases in the show are these kind of Cases involving like paranormal, supernatural, or unexplained or unexplored phenomena, usually having some kind of crime involved with them, hence, you know, the invest the need for an FBI investigation. So the overall uh, story arc of the show is this idea that um, there is a secret group within the U.S. government known as the Syndicate, which is, you know, conspiring and collaborating with these extraterrestrials to you know, take over and colonize Earth. So that's the overall story arc, you know, hence, you know, why much of it deals with like the paranormal. That being said, you know, the show also had you know, a good number of episodes known as Monster of the Week episodes, and these were unrelated to the overarching mythology of the series. And these Monster of the Week episodes dealt with the kind of the supernatural or, you know, kind of unexplained things. One episode had, you know, someone who could like um, contort and literally stretch his body, you know, another dealt with a, a criminal who was like, you know, who had pyrokinesis or something, maybe another guy who could literally like regrow parts of his body and things like that. And the characters themselves are meant to kind of play off each other. You know, the character of Fox Mulder, David Duchovny's character, um, was meant to be this very kind of like, you know, uh, expert on like the occult and, you know, strange paranormal theories and stuff like that. And he would often have these wild, crazy theories about this and that. You know, it's like, oh, maybe this guy is some mutant variation of the human genetic line or something, you know. And then... <clears throat> the character of Gillian Anderson's character played by Dana Scully would course, always be like the Spock, you know, the logical one, you know, it's like, you know, and she would come in and counter Mulder with some kind of, you know, logical explanations like, well, well, Mulder, you know, there's nothing in our genetic history that would suggest that a person could mutate like this. Blah, blah, blah. It's most likely he, this person is suffering from some kind of, uh, you know, so, but you know, the whole point, you know, it, it's meant for entertainment purposes, you know, one has the crazy kooky theory and the other has the logical explanation. Now, the show was originally something of a cult show, you might say. You know, it had a fairly small following at the start of it for the first, you know, season or two, but it rapidly gained a very mainstream following. And looking back on it, back on it with hindsight, you know, this was very much kind of a thing in the 90s. The X-Files became very much a mainstream thing. You know, you said X-Files, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, Fox Mulder, you know, Dana Scully, yep, extraterrestrials, aliens, you know, crazy monsters and things like that, FBI and all that. Yeah, so... It very much became a 90s thing. And particularly in the 90s, I think, you know, science fiction, aliens, and conspiracy theories, particularly ones involving, you know, like UFOs and aliens and all that, that was considered kind of fun pop culture. 
You know, those were fun pop culture phenomena at the time. And it was fun to talk about like, ooh, you know, maybe extraterrestrials really have come down to Earth, you know, in Area 51 and yada, 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 and Roswell and all that stuff. This is, of course, before conspiracy theories turned into more extremist ideologies and became very, very politically, a politically sensitive topic, you know, like they are today. So, I mean, <laughs> there was a time back in the 90s when we considered conspiracy theories to be, you know, big, silly, just fun. Ooh, what if, you know, aliens built the pyramids or something like that? Um, I have not finished watching The X-Files. I mean, there's a lot of episodes in it. And yeah, I've been doing, you know, looking back on it, just like, oh, yeah, I remember this episode. Or, oh, I'm trying to think, you know, where's that one episode that featured that one weird, crazy monster of the week? And, you know, that guy that could do that weird thing. And there, you know, that person who transformed into a, a savage wolf or something, you know. So, yeah, I've been looking around for that. You know, it's like, oh, I remember watching this one. I remember this this one episode really frightened me as a child, you know. I'm, I'm sure you, uh, <laughs> those of you uh, who are X-Files aficionados, everyone remembers the episode of Home from season four. <laughs> yeah, those are those are just t two um, kind of interesting um, TV shows that were uh, playing in my home when I was young. Yeah, I was very much into the X-Files for a while, and of course I'm familiar with uh, at least the first movie that they made. I guess my reason for re-watching Ally McBeal is because when I was young, we, you know, everyone gathered around the TV, sat on the couch, and we had TV time, you know, in the evenings, you know, before the internet was really, really common. Not to, and to, not to mention it was far slower <laughs> than it was today. We didn't have YouTube back then, we didn't have social media really, so... We, uh, you know, had to turn to the TV and books and things like that for our entertainment. You know, we would tune in to a particular TV show, uh, you know, at certain days of the week and, you know, oh, it's a new episode. So for me, it was The X-Files. So I was big into watching X-Files. Um, I got into it kind of in the mid 90s, I think. And so a lot of the, sh the episodes were still running again on syndication. And so I didn't like start watching it in 1993 when it started. So for me, The X-Files was the show that I watched. And the reason why... I have a nostalgic uh, connection to Alan McBeal is because my sister used to watch it. And so, you know, uh, you know, on those days when Alan McBeal was on, I would watch that before I went to bed, you know, and I, I guess I was old enough to pick up on a, a good amount of the comedy in it, you know, but not really a lot of the, the politics, you might say, of it, the, the social issues of it. But I still enjoyed the humor of the Alan McBeal show. So that's why, you know, I think like, what? Alan McBeal, you know? <laughs> Why would you want to watch that? You know, so, well, it's, it's nostalgic for me because my sister watched it, simply put. And it was on, and I'm just like, eh, I'll watch, you know, Alan, Alan McBeal. So, yeah. And, you know, thinking about it now as well, you know, Dawson's Creek was also a frequent show on TV in my home when I was younger. But that being said, my sister was far more into Dawson's Creek. I've seen like a handful of episodes of Dawson's Creek. You know, that's far more romance oriented, you know, because... James Vanderbeek and Joshua Jackson were so dreamy and, you know, Katie Holmes was so cute and all that. So, yeah, I think that was on Wednesdays, Wednesday evenings at like eight or something. But like I said, I'm far less familiar with Dawson's Creek. I'm far more into Alan Beale, probably because of the comedy. Dawson's Creek was far more serious, more dramatic, more about the gushy teen teenage romance. So, yeah, Dawson's Creek wasn't really my thing. I was far more into X-Files and Alan Beale. Anyway, on to the next topic. Um, what's really cool is that uh, Les Stroud has been posting full episodes of his Survivor Man series on YouTube. So I've been watching that as well. <laughs> um, he has his own YouTube channel. Just, you know, do a search right now for Les Stroud's Survivor Man. And you'll come up with his channel. And you can watch full episodes of his Survivor Man series, right? So for those of you who don't know, um, Survivor Man was at this time, you know, kind of the early 2000s, um, 
there's kind of this big battle of the survival TV shows, right? Shows featuring experts, you know, survival experts who would go out into the wild and live off the land and teach you basic survival skills. You know, oh, I'm going to try I'm going to start a fire, you know, using a, a twig and piece of string or something, you know, or I'm going to build a shelter with a pocket knife and a book of matches or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so things like that. So, and the big competing survival shows of the time were Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls and Survivor Man with Les Stroud. The thing about Survivor Man, I'd say, which far more endears it to me is the realism of it in that um, the whole thing about Survivor Man is that Les Stroud would go out into the wilderness in various, you know, locales uh, himself alone and he would film himself for seven days surviving. You know, maybe it was the jungles of Costa Rica or the Amazon or maybe it was like the desert, the Kalahari Desert or, you know, I'm going to survive for a week in the Canadian Rockies or, um, you know, in the Arctic Tundra or something. He'd do that for seven days, right? And that's the thing about Les Stroud is that he would do this all on his own, which means all of, you know, like 90% of the camera work, with the exception of a couple of minutes, you know, at the start of it, would be all done by him. So he would be lugging around, you know, 50 pounds of camera gear with him. He would have to set up all the shots, you know, set up the tripod, put the camera down, you know, compose the shot, you know, get it the way he wants it you know, film everything himself, pick up the camera, move it again, do this, do that. And all the while he's trying to, you know, start a fire or, you know, gather food or fish or, you know, find food or build a shelter or things like that. And as a result, I think a lot of the advice that Stroud gives was, you know, far more sound, right? I'm not a fan of Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls because I think Grylls did many things on his show. I've seen a couple of, a handful of episodes from Man vs. Wild. And a lot of them just kind of showcase grills doing things, I think just for shock value to kind of gross people out, you know, he'll stick a giant like a grub in his mouth and just eat it. And you see the guts and it just spew out of the side of his mouth or, you know, there's this one where he picks up a big heap of elephant dung and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to squeeze the water out of this. And that's how I'm going to get my water. And he holds it above his mouth, opens his mouth and just squeezes this big pile of elephant crap and just water comes out of it it's like oh gross man you know it's like man versus wild was the extreme you know all that you know because bear grills was in the british sas you know he's a real tactical guy a, a survival expert and has to do everything really extreme and awesome and all that blah, blah blah you know so yeah but of course you know when you read into the production of man versus wild you know it it, it was distinct from survivor man and that it wasn't bear grills out there on his own doing this stuff you know he had a crew a camera crew following him around and in a number of the locales he was in he was not far at all from civilization you know if they were to have, like turn the camera around or something there would be like you know a road just behind them or something or you know or they he didn't really like lit sleep and live out there in the wilderness during the show you know in reality they just you know went back to their hotel or something for the night and they would come out again, you know, ne the next day and do something other kooky, weird survival skills. So, and a number of people have said, you know, a lot of the survival skills that Bear Grylls taught were are not very good to survive. Like, there's no practical reason for doing something like that. You wouldn't want to do that, you know? It's like, oh, just drink your pee or something. No, don't do that. So, yeah. As I researched more into Man vs. Wild, I realized just how much, you know, it was like fabricated, you know? It's like, oh, I'm going to cut open this 
carcass of a dead animal and sleep in it. You know, it's like, well, ew, gross, you know. In contrast, you know, I just, I'd felt that the advice given by Les Stroud in his Survivor Man series is far more sound. Now, I'm not some survival expert, mind you, but I have read stories of people who have survived, you know, getting lost in the wilderness because of things they learned on the show. Because I think Stroud gives very clear, very simple advice. So he talks a lot about the mentality of what it takes to survive out there, the things you need to do to take stock of what you can do, how you can look around you, you know, zones of assessment, you know, what do you have on you? What do you have around you? And what do you have a little bit further out from you? You know, how could you do this? How, what, the, what are the important elements of starting a fire? You know, prioritize what you need. Is it food or water, shelter, fire, whatever? So, so I mean, um, I think a lot of the stuff that Les Stroud did was just far more practical. And he does it all in a very calm way. And, you know, the, the drama just came naturally. He didn't seem to do things for shock value. And plus, you know, you got to understand, he's doing all this himself. He's doing his own filming. And he does a lot of the music as well. He's also a musician. When you look into the behind the scenes stuff for um, the Survivor Man series, you realize that, you know, he doesn't just go out there, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to go to, the, you know, this mountaintop and survive for seven days. No, he, um, he puts a ton of research, his, his team that he does work with, puts a lot of research and preparation before he goes out there and he puts himself, himself in these situations, you know? So he, he'll talk with local experts. What are the things that you can eat off the land, you know? What are some dangerous animals that I need, need to be aware of, you know? What are some common flora and fauna that are out there? Where, what things are edible, what things aren't? You know, what are some survival tricks that people have used and all that? So he does a lot of research before he goes out there. And he goes into these scenarios realistically and he lets the drama speak for itself and he's not really putting himself in extreme danger. He's not doing things for shock values. Now that being said, you know, there, there were always like safety nets involved. You know, there's always a safety crew on standby if he needed help, right? Apart from that, he's doing it all on his own. And um, yeah, it just lends a certain authenticity to the show. Now that being said, I have speculated that there is a certain degree of fabrication involved in Survivor Man. Like, no doubt that Les Stroud is doing all this on his own, but, um, you know, I question how remote he is in some of these places. He is going into these very rural areas, you know, where there's not a ton of people, but um, I do kind of wonder, like, huh, is he really that far from civilization, right? Like, is there, like, maybe, like, a tiny little village, like, five miles away on the other side of these hills or something that he could just easily walk to, you know, or he is remote, you know, and if you did, if you were totally lost and, you know, and didn't know where you were going, yeah, you could easily die out there. But I've wondered like, huh, how far is he really from civilization? Like, he, I don't know if he's like a hundred miles away or he could be like 10 miles away, you know, maybe you could walk there to help in a day or something. But that being said, you know, I, I do think, you know, his survival is genuine Although sometimes I just question just how remote some of the locations he was in were. Then again, you know, it's probably worth noting that you don't need to be hundreds of miles away from civilization to get lost or stranded. You know, I'm just kind of wondering, you know, like how far away Les really is from a lot of civilization. So, um, in fact, in season five, episode four, I believe, uh, Stroud simulated what happened to the Kane family uh, and what they went through in the mountains of Oregon. So it turns out like they went mushroom hunting, I think it was, and they got turned around and lost their bearings. 
And so what was supposed to be just a few for just a few hours, you know, in the mountains looking for mushrooms, they ended up stranded in the woods for six days. And, uh, you know, it turned bad, you know, they had no food really, and they got frostbite and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, luckily they survived, but it turns out that they were just like 1,700 feet from their car. So it just goes to show, you know, I mean, you know, out in the wilderness, you know, it, it's very easy to get yourself turned around, you know, and you lose your bearings. And before you know it, you're like, oh, you know, where's the road? Where's the trail? You know, where's my car? It should be over there. You know, something like that. Oh, the campsite's, you know, just over that hill. Just walk there. And before you realize it, you know, somewhere you got turned around and right, then you start panicking and you go off in the wrong direction. You get yourself more, more and more lost. And indeed, you know, you don't have to be that far away. You know, <laughs> these people weren't even, you know, a half mile away from their car. And they got lost for six days, so. There was one episode, I think, where he was up in Alaska where he inadvertently canoed into a state park. And he was, like, contacted by, like, some park rangers or something. They came and basically uh, said, like, oh, you know, you need you can't film here. You know, you need the permits and all that. So, yeah, he, he has had contact with some people, you know. Or maybe, you know, he was in the Amazon jungle and um, he was being chased by, like, a, a leopard or something. So he took refuge with a local native tribe in the Amazon. So, yeah. So, indeed, in some cases, he's not that far away from, you know, people. But, again, of course, you know, <laughs> I'm no survival expert. Anyway, uh, moving on to kind of my final topic of this episode, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, some good old-fashioned radio. Um, I listened to the John Jay and Rich show, as well as the Jubal show. Uh, on my drive to work. Yeah, they're, they're kind of like, they talk about, you know, pop culture and things like that, movies and shows they're watching, various other things. And so, yeah, it's just a big, big hodgepodge of various things that they talk about. And not all of their commentary is necessarily interesting, but it's just funny. I, I like their, the segments that they do called War of the Roses, uh, where they try to catch someone who's cheating. And another one called First Date Follow-Up, you know, which is someone has been like, you know, went on a date, and they're like being ghosted or something and they've called the radio show and it's like, oh, can you help me out here? Can we get some answers? Why, why am I being ghosted or whatever? So, or, you know, is my husband cheating or something? You know, so stuff like that. So I just, I just think that, you know, the, the kind of the drama in it is kind of silly in a way, but it's entertaining at the very least, you know, I, I'm not sure what the deal is, why you would want to call a radio show and like sort of air your personal stuff, you know, out there for how many listeners to hear, you know, it's like, you know, so what? I mean, this girl or this guy is ghosting you or whatever, uh, you know, or, or you think your, your husband or your wife or whoever is, or significant other is cheating on you. It's like, yeah. So you call or email a radio show and ask them to help you out. Okay. No, well, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know the, the mentality of these people, why they would do that, but that's what they do. Anyway, it's, it's just funny, you know, now, I guess the way it works in radio is that um, a lot of these segments are recorded ahead of time, you know, and then they're aired later because they're worked into the episodes, you know, they, um, they need to like bleep out the, the foul language and all that. So, yeah, but I have noticed that some of the episodes of these things like First Date Follow Up or um, War of the Roses or whatever, some of them do repeat. I've heard some of them more than once. I'm like, you know, I'm driving along and I'm listening to the show and I'm like, wait, haven't I heard this one before? This one sounds awfully familiar. So yeah, definitely some of these, these do repeat. So which obviously means that they're previously recorded. And also in line with that, I question the authenticity of some of them. Like often the, the scenarios that we hear, that I hear on, on these shows, they're so melodramatic in a way, you know, it's like 
this person has been cheating on their significant other and of all the places to get caught, they get caught on the radio, caught up, caught up in their lies or whatever, or in the case of like first date follow-up, it's like, really, you ghosted this person that you went on a date with and you're ghosting them for such and such a reason? Like, that's the reason why you don't talk to them anymore because you didn't like the color of their car or something or whatever, you know, it's like, yeah. Some of the reasons that people give or, you know, some of the cheats that they've caught people in, it's just really odd, you know? It's like, eh, it's like, I don't know. It's like, some of this just almost... It's, it seems so melodramatic. It seems so outlandish that it, it's like it's manufactured or something. But that being said, I mean, like, this is radio, right? So for all I know, it's a, it's a really wild, crazy world we live in. And given the fact that some people just naturally have really kooky, dramatic lives, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if, some, if this stuff is authentic. You know, it's like, yeah, this is like those, you know, that one person who's got the dramatic story or whatever. You know, it's like, oh my husband's cheating on me or my wife's cheating on me with my, my neighbors, brothers, cousins, whatever. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, Oh, I I didn't like the, the, the way that got this, this person parted their hair. So I'm not going on a date with them anymore. Yeah. And uh, they wore the wrong shoes and they drove the wrong car and they were 30 seconds late for the date or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I said, it's a crazy world we live in and people are weird like that. So, (laughs) For all I know, yeah, this stuff is genuine. It's just funny like that. So, yeah, that's just my opinion. I mean, like I said, you know, it's radio. So, yeah, John Jay and Rich or the Jubal Show, yeah, just entertaining to listen to on my drive to work. Whenever I get tired of, you know, the radio repeating the same 20 songs over and over and over and over and over. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's only so much Adele I can listen to, only so much Billie Eilish, only so much, you know, this artist or that artist. This is like... Yes, indeedy. So I think that'll about do it for this episode of Random Musings. So uh, hopefully I'll have some, something more to write on and talk about in the next, uh, at least in the next couple of months. So who knows? Yep. But uh, with that being said, uh, thank you, everyone, and I will see you next time.